This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hi, my name's David Hanna. I'm the author of Broken Icarus. My new book is about the 1933 Chicago World's Fair, Aviation and the Rise of Fascism. You're listening to the Dr. Sky Experience on 77 WABC. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the exciting Dr. Sky Experience on America's iconic radio station, Talk Radio 77, WABC, out of New York City and around the world. The Dr. Sky Experience has great interviews from the realms of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather, with celebrity guests in the mix, and as an added bonus, great guests from the realms of American exceptionalism as we continue to talk about truth, justice, and the American way. And to make all that happen, we're privileged and honored to have our producer as part of this particular program, Dr. D, Richard Dugan, who makes it all happen. Sit back and relax, ladies and gentlemen, a very special guest today. Just a moment, a brief introduction of our author and guest, David Hanna, a brand new Prometheus Books book entitled Broken Icarus, the 1933 Chicago World's Fair, the Golden Age of Aviation, and the Rise of Fascism. But a brief introduction of our special guest is in order. David Hanna was raised on the coast of Maine. He teaches history at Stuyvesant High School in New York, and he is a recipient of the New York Times Teachers Make a Difference Award and the University of Chicago's Outstanding Educator Award. In addition, in today's book, he's also the proud author of Knights of the Sea, Rendezvous with Death, and he's here today to talk about this iconic book that's so timely today, especially if you're a fan of aviation. And American history. A little backtrack on the book and sideline goes like this. In the 1930s, they still conjure painful images, the great want of the Depression, and overseas, the exuberant crowds motivated by self-appointed national saviors dressing up old hatreds as new ideas. But there was another story that embodied mankind in that decade. In the same year that both Adolf Hitler and Franklin D. Roosevelt came to power, the city of Chicago staged what was, up to that time, the most forward-looking international exhibition in history. That is the 1933 World's Fair. It looked to the future unabashedly as one of the full glowing promise of the future, that particular exhibition, A Century of Progress. And here to tell us about that is David Hanna. David, thank you for joining us today, and thank you for being with us. Uh, it's my pleasure, Dr. Sky. Well, thank you so much. I mean, this is a fascinating book, and yes, I did read the book from cover to cover. And who wouldn't want to? Because it has so much great information here. And of course, as you know, we've spoken before this interview, what great interest we both share in the world of aviation and in history. But tell us the power behind this and the motivation for writing the book. It's so timely for those that are interested in aviation, but uh, let's hear what you have to say. How did it all evolve? Well, it was partly uh, an interest that I had in World's Fair since I was uh, very young. I just found them fascinating. And this particular World's Fair 
was one that was, uh, as you as you earlier referenced, was uh, particularly uh, uh, for, forward-looking. Really, the first of the world's fairs to, to be so forward-looking. Uh, you know, if you think about uh, uh, television series like uh, Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry's uh, uh, Star Trek, or for instance, the animated series The Jetsons, uh, you can see a direct line back to the 1933 Chicago World's Fair. And then, of course, there's uh, the experimental prototype city of tomorrow, Epcot, uh, that was built by uh, Disney in uh, Florida, and so, which uh, really fascinates me. And so that, that was part of it. The other part was the 30s, looking at this period, because the period we generally associate with the road to World War II and uh, all of all that that entails, which is um, yes. a pretty pretty dark chapter in, in world history. And but there's this moment, sort of just before everything sort of goes wrong, if you will, um, where that was still out there in the future. You know, no one knew; they didn't know that was necessarily the case. There certainly was a feeling Hitler had been in power for a few months at that point, um, and there was a feeling that uh, Hitler was going to have to be confronted in some way, but. Um, again, the idea of going to war, I don't think that was on people's minds at the time. Um, and so there's that element. And then in terms of aviation, it was the, for me, it was the most logical way to approach trying to explain the fair to people because it was explicitly promoted by the fair as the, you know, the main motif. If you look at, uh, for instance, the main promotional uh, poster, it features... Uh, seaplanes, it has zeppelins, it has balloons ascending to the stratosphere. Because they knew, as they had already set up the calendar, uh, that they were going to have events featuring aviation and these attempts to reach the stratosphere spaced out over a period of time in the fair's calendar. And that was, that was going to be the, the sort of the, the common thread that would, would pulled it all together for people. And it was something that was still, sure. it was still a wonder uh, wonder of it all uh, element that I think today we, we lack, you know, we, we, you know, we, we check in, we go, you know, we go through security, we get on our, our plane, we're, you know, we're flying from New York to Chicago and we exactly. don't really think much of it, but that, that uh, we weren't there quite yet at that point. And so that was very exciting for people. Well, David, as we go into this particular story here, I just want to bring up a little bit of a, Let's go back in the time capsule kind of thing here. Let's imagine that we're going back and doing a little promo for this particular event just to put people in the right mindset as we explore with you, the author, some of the great details of how this came about. So we'll say it this way. Folks, come to the World's Fair in Chicago. A century of progress, May the 27th to November the 1st. How about this? Adults, 50 cents, and children, 25 cents. But you know, even though that's not a super promo, it still tells a lot. But the picture is worth more than a thousand words. The Million Dollar Hall of Science, shown here, is the central building of Chicago's 1933 World's Fair. Its outstanding feature is the optical illusion tower, which gives the impression of being a real skyscraper, although actually it is only a hundred feet high. This building also stresses the modern in architecture. Its main entrance is designed along modernistic lines, which will focus attention on a center fountain to be illuminated by reflected light. Here is a replica of Fort Dearborn, reconstructed from the plans of Captain Whistler, who originally built it on the site from which modern Chicago grew. 
This is the administration building, another modernistic marvel where all business pertaining to the fair will be handled. And now you see the travel and transport building. Its unique feature is the roof, a dome suspended by steel cables. On June 1st, 1933, the World's Fair will open, dedicated to a century of progress. You know, it's just so amazing. I'm looking here inside the cover of this particular book of yours, and these posters are just so outstanding. This Art Deco off the charts. I just love it. And I'm definitely going to get a poster like this and put it in my office someday. <laughs> I mean, I just love that era. But David, let's talk a little bit more about this. I mean, let's talk about how this particular fair got started. It's not easy to do a World's Fair. And then later, I want to talk a little bit about the connection to astronomy, because maybe I've said this incorrectly to some of my audience when we do the astronomy programs about a certain star in the heavens and its connection to this fair. But talk about how the whole fair got started. Who was behind it? How did it get funded? And why was it so successful? I understand it was what, one of the first profitable World's Fairs of all time. Am I right? Yes. Uh, well, it's interesting because the, you know, the timing, we look back at it, you know, it's happening right in the middle of the, the Depression. Uh, these were you know, pretty rough times, to say the least. But it was planned during the Roaring Twenties when you know, the, the were, there were times of plenty. And so that's important to note, you know, that, that it, that, you know, the, to run, or rather to put on a fair of, of this size, it took years um, to put that together. But what had happened was, was that uh, th there was a mixed reception uh, in City Hall for having uh, a fair. They were willing to endorse it, but they weren't really, really interested in, in uh, diverting any funds for it. I see. And the, uh, you know, the sort of the, the big civic boosters in the city, uh, well-connected uh, Chicagoans, like, for instance, uh, Rufus Dawes and his brother Charles Dawes, uh, decided that, well, that that's how we want to do it. So they decided that it's going to be strictly a, a private sector run fair. Um, and for those uh, of your listeners who feel that it's better to you know let the gov get, government get out of the way and let the right. private sector do it, I mean this is one of this is an example of something that really did work. I mean it, it really that that held up really well. Now the, one of the interesting things is that that generation of leaders in Chicago. Uh, their, one of their main experiences as adults was the, the World War I. And World War I, uh, one of the reasons why the United States' contribution was so effective was because mm -hmm. we were, in that era, very interested in efficiency. It was something that was the watchword for the time in business yes. and in industry. And they had been involved in purchasing um, uh, materials and oversight for the American Expeditionary Force in France. And they hired this guy named Lennox Lore, um, who was a, a real can-do, efficient, um, uh, dynamic guy with tremendous energy, who knew exactly, they were, they were all, that's the thing about it, they were all on the same page. Uh, you know, you didn't have a lot, once they decided what they were going to do, uh, they, there was not a lot of uh, falling, you know, in terms of, uh, say, falling out, just, Disagreement. They were they they were working towards the same goal, and Lennox Lore was absolutely the right guy to to get this done to see it through. Now, what he did with the Dawes's connections, both in business and politics, and then his own can-do uh, know-how from his experience during World War One, was to reach out to private businesses. So, for instance, like a GE or a, a Westinghouse or a Chrysler Corporation or Ford, and convince them that. What they should do, instead of having their separate promotional pavilions, 
that they should feature basically their industry and all work together to show the best of their in- industry in the most forward-looking light. Yes. To create, I guess you could say, cooperative sort of mm-hmm. by industry. Um, and that was one of the things that made it very successful and very exciting. And it also ties back to what you had mentioned about uh, the way that the fair literally started with this uh, kind of a publicity stunt, but an, a, a way of showing um, the power of technology to harness, for instance, light from a star that you know, <laughs> is thousands of light years away. Well, I'd like to get into um, and, that, but I want to mention yeah. to everybody listening, you are listening to the Dr. Sky Experience with me, Dr. Sky. We're on America's iconic radio station. Yes, Talk Radio 77W, ABC in New York City and around the world. We're here, of course, not only on the air, but also on WABCRadio.com, where you can, of course, follow us on our podcast and our blog reports here on great subjects like astronomy, space, aviation, and weather, celebrity guests in the mix, and Stories about American exceptionalism as we continue to talk about truth, justice, and the American way. And fitting right into this mold, I mean, perfectly, in my opinion, is author David Hanna, a brand new book, Broken Icarus, the 1933 Chicago World's Fair, the Golden Age of Aviation, and the Rise of Fascism, a Prometheus Books book that, yes, ladies and gentlemen, you can get just about anywhere. I encourage you to do that. But let's talk a little bit more in the time we have here, David. This is just fascinating as you're bringing us into the enlightenment of how the fair got started. Talk a little bit more. Let's start off with this Italian aviator that I think really rocks the world, and he does something amazing, this individual, Italo Balbo. Talk about him, and what did he bring to Chicago, but a little bit more about him, and also maybe on the dark side, Talk a little bit about the rise of fascism that's starting to evolve in the world, not only with Hitler, but Mussolini, and the story of Italo Balbo. Aviation's greatest feat of that year was the mass flight of an Italian air armada to the Chicago World's Fair. General Italo Balbo led his fleet of 24 giant seaplanes, landing in flawless array. On the 6,100-mile return flight to Orbitello, Italy, he paused to receive a hero's welcome from New York City. Millions jammed lower Broadway to cheer Balbo, his 96 officers and men, perhaps the most effective goodwill ambassadors from Italy during Mussolini's entire reign. Well, it's a little Balbo was uh, part of that. He was somebody who came, was a veteran of World War I. He eventually joined up with the black shirts in Italy. That led to the rise of Mussolini, who was the first fascist dictator. Um, he, the, 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 the fascists saw their movement essentially as an antidote to communism, the Bolshevik Revolution had happened in Russia, and it scared a lot of people at the time. Um, and they also, they, they, were, they were either impatient or unimpressed with liberal democracy. They felt that it was weak. They weren't, you know, they, 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 especially in countries like, for instance, Italy and Germany, where there was a lot of turmoil yeah. after World War One. They weren't stable countries like our own. Uh, and that, that has a lot to do with it. But what happened is, is one of his rewards for backing Mussolini was to become the head of the Aeronautica, the Italian Air Force. And he eventually becomes an advocate of, uh, instead of having, like say, the, the Charles Lindbergh, you know, the Lone Eagle with his remarkable uh, transatlantic crossing in 1927, he wants to organize large groups of planes to make cruises. And he does this to the Medi- around the Mediterranean, eventually across the South Atlantic to Brazil. But the most ambitious was uh, this uh, two do- these two dozen uh, Savoia Marchetti seaplanes, these giant uh, seaplanes 
that were going to cross uh, uh, the North Atlantic after sort of uh, jumping over from uh, uh, Iceland and then to uh, Labrador and then go up the St. Lawrence, cross the Great Lakes, and then descend on Lake Michigan. Of course, this would take – obviously, they couldn't do this all in one shot. And it's no easy feat, by the way. I mean, this is tremendous in the time we're talking about, even today for that type of airplane. It's not it really easy, is. Uh, it's very dangerous. Yeah, it was, very, it, was, it was quite dangerous. And, and the, you know, the, I said the thing about all of these uh, aviators, um, and I guess you could say that, that those that anticipate, you know, the, the space race, is that to a large degree they were making this up as they went along. You know? And uh, but somebody has to. That's the thing. Somebody has to be the pioneer, or we wouldn't benefit with our ability to, for instance, like I said, just you know, jet from city, you know, from city to city without thinking much about it. Somebody had to do this. And so, and this was at a time, by the way, it was interesting. It wasn't clear that the airplane landing on hard ground with uh, wheels uh, was going to be the mode. Uh, you know, many thought that the seaplane was a better option, you know, landing on water. Uh, and, of course, there were the Zeppelins. But anyway, when, when Balbo came, he was just such a sensation. He was a tremendously charismatic guy. Uh, and it was the, the city just, it was just euphoric, the reception that he received, uh, people talking about how beautiful it was seeing these planes land in form precision formation on Lake Michigan on a beautiful summer day. Uh, and he was able to, he was, he, he liked people that also helped. That sure um, does, right? And so, yeah. And then they felt that. And it's interesting because he was a fascist and for instance, socialists were, were in arms, up in arms about the fact that he was being welcomed because. They, they battled in the streets of, of Italy in the 20s. And he, you know, it's interesting because he, he was never comfortable, for instance, when Mussolini started uh, kind of getting close to Hitler and he warned against it. And he was certainly not willing to uh, parrot the, the anti-Semitic line. He explicitly said that that has no part of that in his vision of Italian identity. Um, but he was a black shirt. And when we look back on it, it's interesting. You know, I've seen, you know, eclipse of the planes over Chicago's yeah. skyline and you see all of them in formation and you hear the, the propellers roaring. And we know, of course, World War II is coming in. A lot of times when we hear that, we think, oh, gosh, <laughs> you know, well, I read in between the you know? lines there, David, I read in between the lines that I feel the great, you know, dislike, if not, I hate the word hatred between Mussolini and Balbo as, as he becomes such a hero to the people. In other words, the jealousy factor with Mussolini is off the charts, as, as I read well in the book. Am I correct? Yeah, he, he, I, it, it was really hard for, for Balbo to walk the fine line, because the more success he had, then the more that that caused a rift with him and Mussolini. Mussolini eventually packed him off to an Italian colony in North Africa. And in some ways, it was the best thing that ever happened to Balbo, because he was sort of out of commission as things started to go in a really, the, really bad direction. But he wound up getting shot down by friendly fire at the very beginning of the war um, right. in North Africa. Uh, but he really did. He made, he, 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 he was really quite, quite a character. Um, and it's, but it's controversial even today in Chicago, you know, I've talked to people, there's a street, really quite, quite a nice street that uh, leads down to the, 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 the lake. And they've talked about, well, should we change it since Balbo drive, you know, should we, should we change it? Because he, he was a fascist. Right. It seems that at the time, and I think even to, to a degree today, I think Chicagoans differentiate between him and Mussolini. Um, and I, I, I think they'll probably, I, I would be surprised if they were to change that street name. But of course, it's up to Chicagoans. It's certainly not up Absolutely. To and now with they're tearing it down on many statues across the country, I mean, this is something that I'm sure is on people's minds. 
that are very sensitive to things like this. You know, this is quite fascinating, David, as we talk about this. But what I wanted to shift gears on is something from the world of astronomy, which is even more to me, I don't know, just so amazing. I read about this a long time ago. Let's go back. Dateline, May 27, 1933. A telescope is set along the shores of Lake Michigan to open up the World's Fair and in tribute to the star, which we all know in the world of astronomy is Arcturus, this orange-red supergiant star, obviously a distance now of about 40 light years away. Symbology is what? That the starlight that left in 1893, the last of the great fairs, this starlight opened up the World's Fair. I want to hear more about this because... I don't know much about it, but I'm fascinated about it. Uh, very much accurate, correct? That's what they did. Yeah, that, 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 that's, about, that, that's about right. May 27th was opening day, and they had a big crowd. But then at night, once it started to get uh, dark, closer towards, I guess, getting on towards nine, they had a planned event. And the event was to capture the light from Arcturus. Uh, and GE and Westinghouse had collaborated uh, with uh, some of the top university research scientists who were working in, in astronomy and also in the field of electronics. Uh, and the, uh, one of the things that was also interesting about it was that 40 years you just mentioned, because everybody um, who uh, would have been of a certain age at that time in Chicago would have remembered that 40 years prior, had been the famous 1893 Chicago World's Fair, the White sure. City. And so the idea that this light that was traveling towards Earth took 40 years to reach us had been generated by this giant uh, red-orange star on the, you know, the, the sort of the halo of the Milky Way. Amazing. Um, is it, they, you know, they timed, they, that was something that they had promoted, that there's a, it's 40 years, as you said, and so that it's... Um, you know, it's it's connecting back to the 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 city's own heritage with its first fair, uh, and so they harnessed the light, um, and there these, uh, these photoelectric cells essentially captured the light, and they used it to then essentially light up the what was called the what was the it was this this fountain they called it a lagoon, but it was it was actually it, it's just, it's like a little sort of arm of the lake in sure. the northerly aisle on the lakefront, and they had this magnificent. Um, rainbow-colored uh, light show that would that started up, which people loved. And it's interesting because if you go to Epcot every evening, they have in this central pool the same type of uh, Technicolor uh, uh, light show. Um, Walt Disney had visited the 1933 Chicago World's Fair and was very interested in a lot of both the scientific, futuristic mm-hmm. exhibits. And then also the sort of the midway, you know, the you know the, sure. there was actually a mock uh, Belgian uh, town and so forth. And so anyway, th- th- there's a de- direct connection. But then it lit it up, and people just were thrilled by it. And also there was a lot of um, neon used for the first time. Joseph Urban was this set designer uh, who was a genius. He actually never got to see it because he had he died. But he had what a shame. Uh, planned everything so you'd have this, this neon using essentially light as architecture. Um, and this was all lit up. And, and what they did, people loved it so much that they went through the same process of harnessing this light from Arcturus every night. And wow. so and this was so popular. And the Adler Planetarium, if, if, you, if you know Chicago, you're in Chicago listening, of course, that still exists. That was oh, yeah, I've been on there. the fairgrounds. Beautiful. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
No, David, this is just a fascinating story because, you know, I just envy that. I mean, the time period, neon, starlight, the most amazing exhibits, your story as we continue to move through time and space. David Hanna, our guest, here on the Dr. Sky Experience as we talk about great stories, ladies and gentlemen, and a great book, Broken Icarus, the 1933 Chicago World's Fair, the golden age of aviation and the rise of fascism. You know, I'm moving fast forward here, but my gosh, I want to learn so much about this, and so do our listeners. The big era of Zeppelins, and a man that I'm so fascinated by, I want to you know, just tell us everything you possibly can in this short interview. Hugo Eckner, a real genius of the uh, aircraft that we call lighter than air, the, the Zeppelin. Describe him and his creations there in Germany. I mean, this is a fascinating story. That famous old German dirigible, the Graf Zeppelin, comes rolling up from Rio. She stops at Miami on her way from the Argentine, a hop of over 4,000 miles. This is her fourth flight to America, and she has flown 275,000 miles all over the globe. So she knows her way about, and she certainly knows how to land. Her veteran commander, Dr. Eckner, comes down the ladder and is greeted by Florida officials. Dr. Eckner piloted the Graf Zeppelin around the world in 1929 and has successfully flown 17,000 persons on more than 250 flights. A brief rest, and then she's off again on her way to Chicago, where she circles over the world's fair. She takes a look at the sky ride and on over the planetarium. Finally, after a complete survey of the exhibition, the giant airship lands again. Once more with the utmost ease and grace. In fact, she makes it look easy. Hugo Eckner uh, was a real Renaissance man. He had, he had many interests. and Actually, he had learned earned his PhD not in engineering or aviation like you might think, but actually in the humanities social sciences, rather. Um, but what happened was is he got a job as a, basically like a PR guy for the original Zeppelin company, which was founded by this old uh, uh, German officer named uh, uh, Ferdinand von Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. And eventually, he fell in love with the whole project. And then he wanted to learn how to actually pilot them and design them. So he went from PR into actually, you know, actually piloting them and designing them. And he became the real face of the of the Zeppelin. It was more than just a, a, a type of aviation. It was almost like a movement, because Zeppelins represented this this magical, uh, wondrous. He called it a silvery fish, you know, that would come out of the clouds, that would connect all of mankind. He in 1929 went on an around the world tour that was sponsored by William Randolph Hearst, uh, and. Uh, you know, it, to, to show the Zeppelin to people from all over the world, people who would have been uh, familiar with them, people who probably thought they were from outer space, uh, oh, who yeah. had no idea. Uh, it's a pretty remarkable story. So he saw it as something that would connect people. Uh, and the Graf Zeppelin, Graf meaning count, was the, you know, the non-plus ultra in Zeppelin, in Zeppelin travel at that time. It was already involved in passenger service between Europe and Brazil. Well, this is amazing, uh, David, because you're talking about something almost 800 feet long, and we've all seen Goodyear blimps, and of course, in that particular World's Flare in 1933, they even had one, as you describe in the book. But it's so amazing. I almost imagine the startling phenomenon that that would give the senses if you even saw the thing, 
And knowing that as I talked to you off air about this, I said that apparently it came across, and you, you accurately described it because you're the historian, that the obvious thing is it came from, let's say, San, from uh, Los Angeles, moving again, again back east. It probably came across where I am in Arizona, I believe, what, in 1929. And can yep. you imagine people in the outer, you know, in, the, in farmlands and in rural areas seeing something like that? You're right. It would look like some kind of a spaceship from another world. But what I'm trying to describe and have you describe better, flying and maintaining this was not an easy task. I mean, it was all subjected to the winds. I mean, you really didn't have much control over this. So it was a little bit of luck, I guess, but also great, uh, you know, piloting on, on the half of, uh, of Hugo and, and uh, his, his staff. Describe this. It's it, just amazing. Well, it's interesting. Eckener said that you don't, it's not like you pilot it or drive it. He mm-hmm. said essentially that you, you sort of voyage. It's like he saw it as almost like a, a sea type of, you know, the, the kind of knowledge you needed at sea would be the kind of knowledge that you would bring to bear, particularly with, with the weather. It's interesting because he was from Denmark. I mean, he was from actually a part of Germany that had been part of Denmark just before he was, uh, just, at, just before he was born, rather. Yes. And so he always talked about, you know, that he had this sort of Viking blood. He spent a lot of time as a, as a young boy out on the Baltic Sea sailing by himself. And he really got a sense of the weather. This is a guy who had an uncanny understanding of the weather. And that was crucial in his success. Because, quite frankly, um, these types of giant airships, particularly with, of course, um, hydrogen instead of helium in their cells that kept them aloft, these, I mean, that it was, it was, you know, it was just asking in many ways sure. for a really tragic event like what happened with the Hindenburg in Lake Hurst, New Jersey. Um, uh, it was really, like I said, a kind of a dicey proposition. And it, it wasn't just luck. I think it, there was, again, this element of understanding the weather in a way that in many ways, this is, and this is somewhat problematic. There were other fine Zeppelin captains. He wasn't the only one. But in many ways, he was essential to the whole project. And, to make it work, to make it be viable as a passenger service, you, you can't depend on one person. And that, I think, was ultimately one of the problems. Um, but Eckener, uh, you know, there's also another thing. I, I, I actually uh, was, I went to the Zeppelin company uh, in Frederickshafe in Germany, and my wife and I went up in the current awesome. Zeppelin, which is the Zeppelin NT. This is more of a day trip kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It was wonderful there in the foothills of the Alps. Um, but I talked to one of the, uh, uh, one of the most experienced pilots of, of airships, both um, uh, Z- uh, Zeppelins, the small, smaller Zeppelins now, and of course the blimps, which we're all familiar with. And um, he said that it really was basically he, he, kind of lucky in, in, in many respects. He really, rather, he really was kind of lucky in some respects sure. that, in his opinion, these these types of ships are not meant to be brought across oceans. Uh, and, and and again, and this is a guy who really admires Hugo knows a lot about him. Uh, the Zeppelin Company prominently features him in their promotional film that all the passengers watch before they go off on their uh, day trips. Yes. Um, but he felt that it was it was really pushing it uh, to do that, um, and I thought that was interesting coming coming from him because this is something this is something that's his life's you know his life's work. Well, what's um, amazing to me, David, is that when they had passenger service, I mean, there's descriptions of flying to South America or other places around the world. I mean, here you have this gondola that has areas where people can sleep. You have hot water. They're actually cooking with fire. And above them are these giant flammable gas bags. And yet the description that the people had on this, and I'm sure what, in those days they paid primo. It'd be like what? Flying or, or going onto a you know, luxurious cruise ship today, the top accommodation, first class and beyond. 
But the point is, it did have the capability of transporting people. And even over the ocean, there were some what, near disasters where some of, some of the coverings ripped off. And yes. you know, Hugo knew how to maintain this. And lucky for him and lucky for the ship, the uh, Zeppelin, it made it through these storms. But they could have bought, eaten seriously just crashed into the ocean for the less capable uh, piloting. Yeah, it was. Yeah, again, particularly if you look at the North Atlantic crossings. But you know, it's, it's interesting though when you look at the South Atlantic crossings, the Brazil. That service never had any major mishaps, and it was eventually discontinued just because after what happened with the Hindenburg at Lakers, because just the imagery of that, you know, that that newsreel was seen by so many people, and it was just sort of assumed that, you know, certainly without helium anyway, no one was in their right mind was going to buy, book passage on a. Zeppelin after seeing that, that <laughs> film, of course, so unforgettable. <laughs> you, I'm sure you've seen it. I mean, oh, it's, it's horrible. So iconic, you know. Well, let's go uh, back in time here, not to rush it, but let's go back to October 26, 1933, something that I never knew. And folks, when you get to read David's book, you'll get the full skinny on it. The Zeppelin itself, the Grav, actually came to the Chicago World's Fair. But a little bit of controversy, I think you can describe better. At this particular time, one side of the vessel itself, or the airship, the Zeppelin, was emblazoned with the swastika, and the other side was not. Tell us about that story, because it actually came over Chicago. This is amazing. I never knew that at all. Yeah, I mean, this, this is an interesting story, and I wasn't able to get anything, not, well, definitive enough. Let's put it that way. Uh, so there, there's one... Uh, Interpret, uh, sort of interpretation of events, essentially this, that Hugo Eckner intentionally, when he piloted the craft, he was coming from Akron, Ohio, Zeppelin uh, Goodyear headquarters here in the United States, and coming to the fair that early morning, the idea was to make a big swing around Chicago, um, uh, so like sort of wet the west side, and then go up to the northern part of the city to Moore, and then he dis- he he. He left the craft, and uh, his number two then piloted it back to Akron, and he stayed in the city and promoted the, the Zeppelin project, um, and did it in such a way that you couldn't see the side with the, the swastikas. Um, and again, this is pretty compelling. There's pretty compelling evidence about this. On the other hand, there are other sources that say that that's not what happened. Uh, he did the sort of more direct route right on the lakefront, um, and then came back down. Though, without getting into too much detail, I think it's one of these things sure. where it's probably probably better if they read the, the section of the book because it's, there's a lot of minutiae. And I'll tell you, I dug into everything from wind directions that morning and all you kinds did a of great job. newspapers. <laughs> and uh, it was just, it was, it was hard to pin it down. But I will say this, is that I, I did uh, have the opportunity to interview his grandson, Dr. Uwe Eckner, who lives in Switzerland now. Mm. And he said that he, he knew his grandfather, and he said that his grandfather said that he'd done that previously, earlier in 1933, over other cities. And that was what got my attention. In other words, it wasn't a one-off, because right. he was uh, flying the Graf Zeppelin in 1933. Hitler came to power in early 33. Joseph Goebbels was, Hitler was not a fan of the Zeppelins, but Joseph Goebbels saw them as this uh, great opportunity to spread Nazi propaganda. And so Eckner was constantly trying to keep his distance from them. And eventually this is a battle he lost because as long as he wanted to stay in Germany, you either had to sort of play ball to a degree or you had to. Absolutely. But what, but in the beginning he was able, he was such a celebrity Eckner himself 
that he was able to kind of use that to keep them at, at, at sort of at, at bay for a while. And really, Chicago in the fall of 1933 was really the last time he was really a free agent in the sense that mm-hmm. he could do something that he on his own to make kind of a quiet statement is like, I'm not on board with what's going on back in my home country. I love my country, but this isn't what I, this isn't what I want it to be. Um, and so, you know, I, I find it to be very believable. Um, and again, there are reports um, from uh, other sources that, you know, who are actually one in particular who was on the, uh, the Zeppelin that morning who said this, that that's exactly what happened. Um, it's interesting because, it, you know, the, there was in, in Chicago itself, there was a very strong, large German-American community. Oh, yeah. And they were not, most of them were not very thrilled with Hitler, to say the least. Um, and so they were there to greet Eckner. And they had insisted to the fair that the Nazi swastika not fly anywhere at the fair. Um, and mostly, the biggest group, actually, that was most important in this were actually German-American women. Uh, they, they insisted that this does not represent us. We don't want this. And they want Swastika never flew at the fair. Um, and they backed actually a Jewish Chicago and um, Jewish American group in Chicago of another women's group and showing solidarity with them. Um, and so Eckner was interesting because when he had to go to Chicago, he got invited to all the whirlwind of dinner. Same thing happened to, to Babel. God, it just tires you out thinking about all the, Amazing. All the smiles that they had to, you know, and the hands they had to shake and the toast and the, oh my gosh. But he had to walk a fine line between basically, you know, saying kind of what, or acting the way he wanted to, and then having to meet with some other groups that were not representing most of the German American community who were fanatically pro Nazi. And it was awkward. Like, for instance, he wouldn't give the Nazi salute and that kind of thing. And that was noted. Right. That's um, good. And so it was, you know, it was. I, I, it's, it's the kind of thing. It's just, it just when I was reading about and uh, learning about Eckner, it just seemed like this is the kind of thing. It's just like yeah, I, could, I could see something like that. It's real life. If you're in a dictatorship, so the Dutch guy somehow continues. That. Here, I don't know. Uh, must have been must have been really tough. Oh, absolutely. You know? Well, the Doctor Sky experience continues here on Talk Radio 77 WABC. Our special guest, as you're hearing, and proud to call him a friend, is David Hanna. The book "Broken Icarus: The 1933 Chicago World's Fair, The Golden Age of Aviation." and the rise of fascism. Let's spend a few moments as we move toward the end of this interview, sad to say, and hopefully we can do this in a much longer interview, as time permits in the future. But let's talk about if folks, if you think that the aviation side of Italo Balbo is, is fascinating, and it is, and Hugo Eckner, of course, uh, with our talking about Zeppelins, let's talk about the Picards and moving on to the stratosphere and the connection to this particular World's Fair in Chicago. It's a great story. What, in a few words, is the message you are carrying to the American people, Professor? I will tell what this world looks like from 10 miles off. I will tell about the stratosphere. The stratosphere is a six-hour route between New York and Paris. It will soon be opened to traffic. It may point the way to universal brotherhood and eternal peace. I hope so. Strife is often caused by misunderstanding. Rapid transportation between the two hemispheres will settle minor disputes. I hope a neutral flag will be hoisted in the stratosphere to prevent it ever being used to military purposes. The Intercontinental Highway linking the old and the new worlds, 
holds the promise of mutual goodwill and confidence. When they are only six hours apart, the estranging power of space will be overcome. Europe and America will be next door neighbors. They will drop in on each other and settle their trouble over a cup of tea. Yeah, this is a this is really in many ways my favorite part. Uh, so this is the beginning of space exploration, and it starts with trying to determine the source of cosmic rays mm-hmm. and having them measured uh, by actual scientists using instruments on the, you know the the basically we're talking about on the edge of outer space. Um, and this goes back to some of the, the some of the debates going on in physics at the time. And the first person to essentially see the Earth from the edge of outer space was Auguste Picard. He's a chemist, excuse me, sorry, a physicist from, mm-hmm. from Switzerland. Yes. He had a twin brother, and they'd been interested in ballooning since they were kids. Um, so they had, one thing I like about the Picards, the brothers, is that they're a really great example of men of science. But John Picard, who was the, the, his Auguste twin, was a chemist, was that they were men of science, but they also were men of action. They wanted to do it themselves. Their father had encouraged this. And I think this is a really good message for young people today that, you know, you, you, the best science is that the type that you're actually, you know, going out and experimenting yourself and learning through um, trial and error uh, and to a certain degree taking risks. And this is something that I really admire about the Picards, uh, that they were willing to do this. Anyway, August was the first and then he eventually repeated it. Uh, in Europe, and the affairs organizers wanted he'd become very famous, and they wanted him to come and do another uh, launch to get the altitude record um, from Chicago. Um, but he wasn't uh, interested in doing that. But he said, you know, my brother is living in, in the United States. He was working in R and D, and his wife actually was uh, from a prominent Chicago family, Jeanette Ridlin, uh, and they, they actually had met at the University of Chicago when she was a grad student. He was a professor and professor yeah. there. Anyway, they, they so they were they were working with him, but they were never really um, keen. And eventually, they decided that they were going to have a uh, a navy navy man do it, uh, Tex Settle. And the first launch from Soldier Field, you know, where the Bears play now, was really a fiasco. They, they, there's no business uh, launching a balloon of that size. It was, you know, I never knew they even did it there. Stories. I learned something by What's reading that? your book. Yeah. Yeah, the story's story's tall, and and it, it, eventually it, it caught on uh, some wires, and it actually, he, he was fortunate that it wasn't a, a disaster because not only it was so close, also to the fairgrounds, um, they eventually did eventually um, break the record. He and then he had a, a, a co-pilot, Chester Fordy, later in 1933, but they didn't do it actually from the fairgrounds. But the Picards had insisted because they had been the people behind the design of the capsule in particular, but also the balloon. Their know-how, working with Dow Chemical, Union Carbide, and some of these other co- corporations. And the Picards had insisted that, look, once you're done with it, meaning the fair, Century of Progress, as it's called, we want it, as long as it's you know, still usable. Well, it was still usable. And so what happened is, is that Jean Picard and his wife, Jeanette Picard, then wanted to go and make a, uh attempt at a stratosphere record or excuse me, uh, uh, altitude record into the stratosphere sure. while also conducting experiments um, based on uh, this research into cosmic rays that was being done by Arthur Hawley Compton and Robert Milliken. And the problem was, of course, 
Well, it's, uh, and I, it, well, actually, the, not of course, rather, but the problem was that Jean Picard didn't have a balloon license in the United States, even though he'd flown balloons in Europe with his brother. And so, and he wanted, he was take, he took the science in very seriously. And it was going to require a lot of attention. And Jeanette Picard, his wife, was like, well, I'll do it. And now, this is a time when having a, a female uh, aviatrix, as they exactly. were called. Exactly, that was wasn't not, the normal thing, right? Yeah, you had Bessie Coleman, you had Amelia Earhart. It wasn't seen as, 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 as so strange. But the problem was she was a mother. It, it had a bunch of young sons. And, uh, for instance, Dow Chemical, you know, like, no, we don't want our label on it, uh, on, on the gondola. The National Geographic, who they hoped was going to help sponsor it, was you know, cold feet. And it really was the fact that she was a mother. They thought, no, you're taking tremendous risks. There's, what you're doing could kill you very easily. And she she basically, you know, her her feeling was that, you know, what kind of message does that send to our sons? That here we have a chance to further the field of, of, of uh, sort of the edge of outer space in terms of exploration and science. And, you know, we don't want them to be afraid. We want them to be innovators, risk takers, doing it themselves. And this is a chance for us to show that. And so then her sons actually took part in the launch. What happened was, was that even though she was from Chicago, they ultimately weren't able to get the backing there. But Henry Ford stepped in. And Henry Ford, through his connections in Detroit, was able to get backing from various companies. Uh, there was a radio company, for instance. There was an outfitting company. He also was able to call on Orville Wright uh, to come and uh, provide uh, oversight for her training as a balloon pilot. So these guys, Wright and Ford, were very progressive in terms of essentially, I guess we would call it just empowering women. It's interesting because Ford is one of these guys, he's, you know, there's things about him that are very admirable in others, like his anti-Semitism, which are very distasteful to say the least. Exactly. But in this, okay. in this, in this, but in this regard, he really was very progressive. Um, and with their help and the help of uh, some other uh, folks that Jean Picard um, had uh, worked with in R&D, they were able to get this effort together. And they eventually set a record, not for the overall record, which uh, um, for, for, uh, for, the, for altitude, but for a, for a woman. And they were uh, uh, in the, the, the top five when they had made the ascent. And she held that record until uh, the Soviet uh, Cosma Tereshkova broke it in 1963. David, that's so, an amazing story. I know we're coming to the end of our time with you today, but sadly to say that. But I just wanted to give you the floor. The, the moment here, the question that I always ask every guest is, in this particular case, give us, in your words, the meaning of this book that the people, I think, out there would want to get and the power of this book, how would you summarize the whole, the whole theme of this book, and, and what would you say? I think that we need, as a society, to keep pushing ourselves. Uh, and Thank you. instead of uh, looking inward, we need to try to keep looking outward. I think the, the opening words to the Gene Roddenberry uh, television series, Star Trek, and Roddenberry, as a, as a, as a kid, was fascinated by the fair, even though he never actually went. He read everything he could about it out in Los Angeles when he was a kid. You know, to boldly go where no man has gone before, to seek out new life. That, that, sure. that's, that's, our, that's our heritage from Icarus. And even though, again, that, that particular generation was arguably broken, 
uh, if you look at World War II and the Holocaust, um, I, you know, I think that there is, uh, that is, that, that is something that we can still inspire us and should inspire us. And I think something like, uh, for instance, uh, a manned voyage to Mars is something that, you know, I think we, we should be, I think there is, there's, there's a value in that for us as a society. And as a, I mean, to put it really broad term, just as us, as humans, uh, I, I really think we need to push ourselves. And I think well, say that, so that well, year of the early 30s is, a, is an inspirational period, but also a cautionary tale where it can get hijacked by, you know, people like the Nazis, which what they did with the Zeppelin project. Well, you say it so well, and the namesake of the book, Broken Icarus, comes from the statue that you know, write about and show us, Gustinus Ambrosi. But two quotes that are in the book that I wanted to pass on, and then we want to say thank you until next time. And this, again, is Jeanette Picard. And I quote, when you fly a balloon, you don't file a flight plan. You go where the wind goes, you feel like a part of the air. You almost feel like part of eternity, and you just float along, end quote. And then summarizing the entire century of progress, who better than William Randolph Hearst, who said this, and I quote, a century of progress is ahead of us and not behind us, end quote. David Hanna, I want to thank you so much. The book, of course, Broken Icarus. You can get the book, ladies and gentlemen, wherever good books are sold. Prometheus Books. I wish you and yours the best of a holiday season of joy and happiness and health and a Merry Christmas. Please stay on the line with us as we go to the heartbreak here as we continue to talk here on the Dr. Sky Experience on America's iconic radio station. That is Talk Radio 77 WABC out of New York City and around the world and heard on the Internet at WABCRadio.com. Thank you so much to author David Hammond.